If you have your Bible today, and I hope you do, uh, would you take it and open to Luke chapter 1, please? Luke chapter 1. It's good to be back with you again this week. Uh, I was, I took two weeks of staycation, so it was good to be, you know, kind of away from the office for a while. I got some projects that had been in limbo around the home, got those done, and uh, got to play a bunch of card games and board games with a couple of my children. Not Monopoly, though. I don't know what's up with that. Um, Got to go on some dates with my beautiful wife. Those were long overdue and much enjoyed. Uh, we did our Christmas shopping. We, I think we now have all the kids' Christmas shopping done. Thank you to you for allowing me to go on vacation to do that. Uh, appreciate that. Um, you know, can I, just, can I just say, I don't know if you'll relate with this, but I feel like I stink at Christmas shopping. I just don't feel very good at it. I mean, I'm, I'm good at when my kids give me a list and say, I want this. Zeke gave us a list this year, and it was three columns, and it was um, what I want, what I really want, and what I really, really, really want. Now, it's hard to blow that, right? I mean, if you could afford the really, really want category, that's what you got to do. Um, you know, but it, it, it's hard for me to shop for gifts, and I think one of the reasons it's difficult for me, and I don't know if you can relate, is because one of my love languages, one of my main love languages, is the language of gifts. When someone uh, extends to me the grace of a gift that reflects who I am and what I like and what I mean to them, man, that fills up my love tank faster than anything else. And so I understand the importance of a, of a meaningful gift. I always feel like I struggle, though, because I don't know if my gift is going to be meaningful. And I think a lot of that goes back to uh, the Christmas of 94. 1994, I was a freshman at Bethel College. And when we gathered with my mom's family for Christmas, my grandma had purchased... All of the young men in the family, and there was a large family, mom, mom had seven siblings, and, and they, most of them have large families. She'd purchased all of the young men in the family a soap on a rope. Do you know what soap on a rope is? If you don't, it's exactly what it says it is. It's a bar of soap with a rope through the end. Um, as a freshman in college, I didn't especially find soap on a rope to be a Christmas gift that communicated to me love. It seemed more like, a, like an obligation, like, like maybe grandma had gone through her Christmas list and, uh, and realized, oh, I forgot about Earl. So she ran down to Dollar General real quick and found the first thing she could find. And you know, that's not what happened. But you know, just, it didn't communicate a lot of love to me. And so since 94... Soap on a rope, in, at least in my family, has been synonymous with, that's a horrible gift. Okay, do you, do you, have, do you have like secrets like that in your family? Like when, inside jokes, when you say this, everybody knows, okay, well, that's kind of what it was for us. Sometimes said with laughter, sometimes said with a scowl, um, never said with joy. <clears throat> About a month and a half ago or so, I met with my mom and dad and my aunts and uncles to plan Grandma Wade's funeral. Whenever I meet with a family to plan a funeral, one of the questions I always ask, are there stories that need to be told about your loved one? And are there stories that must not be told about your loved one? My mom looked, we were in the conference room here, and she looked down the table at me and in a way that only a mom can do, you know that motherly look, I'm sure some of you have been on the receiving end of it. She said, you are not to tell the soap on a rope story. 
Now, just to be fair, I wasn't planning on it. I thought that story made, made grandma look not in her best light. So I wouldn't have shared that at a funeral anyway. But mom said, you are not to tell that. And then she and one of her sisters went on to tell why grandma had done that that year. I, I didn't even realize at that point that it wasn't just me who had gotten soap on a rope. I, I didn't realize it was all the young men in the family. But grandma had given that gift to all the young men in the family because it was something that grandpa Wade had enjoyed. You know, he was a World War II vet. And, and somewhere through the Depression or the war, I, I don't know exactly why, Grandpa likes soap on a rope. And so grandma thought it would be a meaningful gift to give to his grandsons, her grandsons, the thing that grandpa likes so much. <laughs> this is a feeling I'm used to going, I'm a dork. <laughs> that was kind of my feeling in that moment. That was, see, this is 2019. That was 1994. Someone better than me can do the math and say how many years 52, no, it wasn't 52, Caitlin, I know that. It's all 25. The 25 years, a quarter of a century, I went thinking, Grandma didn't know me at all. What a dumb gift. And then I learned that it was a meaningful gift. But it's that, it's that sense that a, a gift needs to be meaningful that kind of paralyzes me when it comes to shopping. I don't know if, if you experience the same thing or if you're like, you know what, that looks good, get it for them, wrap it, we'll be good to go. But what I'd like to do today is share what I think could be the best gift that you could give anyone this year as we approach Christmas. We're going to see this in the, in the story of John the Baptist's christening, let's call it. That's not actually a technical word, but um, what it was was actually more painful. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But we're going to see this in the story of John the Baptist. This, what I would say, is the best Christmas gift you could give this year or really any time of the year. So we're going to be in Luke 1. Before we start there, what I want to do, though, is, is offer t the top 10 facts about John the Baptist. We've been in this series. This is now week three. You may have picked up some of these as we've gone, or, or, or maybe some of them will be new. But just to kind of help us hit the ground running, I want to share with you a little bit about John the Baptist, this man called the Forerunner. So top 10 things. These are on your notes. Number one, the forerunner is mentioned in 23 chapters of the Bible. Now, that may not sound too significant. There's, um, there's over 1,000, 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And to think that in 23 of those, the forerunner is mentioned doesn't sound like a lot, but that's pretty significant that from the Old Testament through the New Testament, he would be mentioned that often, not often by name, the series is the forerunner. We've, we've spilled the beans that the forerunner is John the Baptist, but he's not always called John the Baptist in scripture, not always called the forerunner, but 23 and 23 chapters, it points to this, this man who would come, who would prepare the way for Messiah. Number two, John's life was foretold in 703 BC and in 425 BC. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Greg did a really good job of tying the prophecies from Isaiah, which was, uh, you know, 703 BC with, with John's ministry as we see it in John 1. Greg, you did a great job with that, and I, I appreciated the way you connected those dots for us. Number three, John is one of four people the scripture prophesies to come. Scripture specifically talks about four people who would come. So one is obviously the forerunner. Can you, can you guess the other three? 
Yeah, Jesus, good, good. I'm glad you got that. That's like the first prophecy. In, in Genesis 3.15, for example, when Adam and Eve sin, God says to, uh, to Eve and to the serpent, um, you know, the, the son of Eve uh, will one day show up. He says to the serpent, to Satan, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And that's the first messianic or, or prophecy we have about Jesus coming. Who are the other two? We've got the forerunner and Jesus. There's two more. One of them is good and one of them not so much. The third one is Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. Uh, several of the prophets, but especially Isaiah, prophesies that, that God will raise up a Persian who will send God's people back to the promised land. And so we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. Cyrus sure enough came and the people returned and began to rebuild Jerusalem. And the fourth one, this is the one that's not so good, and actually the only one of the four that hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. Any guesses? Well done. The Antichrist, absolutely. Daniel and Revelation would be our two main sources for those prophecies. But there will, come a, uh, there will come a person who stands so starkly against Jesus Christ and leads people astray. He's known as the Antichrist. Number four and number five, the blanks are last and first. Number four, God's last words in the Old Testament were about the forerunner. You can read that in Malachi 4. And then as we flip to the New Testament, some 400 years later, the first time we hear of God's words in the New Testament, they're about John the Baptist. And, and that's when Gabriel appears to Zechariah. Number six, John was a Nazarite from birth. We're not going to dig into that. You can read number six where it lays out what it means to be a Nazarite, what that vow meant for God's people, what characteristics they had to, they had to live up to and match. And as we read through those characteristics in number six, we see that uh, sure enough, John the Baptist met uh, those and, and was a Nazarite from birth. He fulfilled that vow. Number seven, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. There is a mistake in your notes there if you want to cross out Luke 1, 17, or just 17, and instead write 15. I put the wrong reference, my mistake. Um, but in Luke 1, 15, it very clearly says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from before birth. Most of us receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. That's, that's one of the gifts that comes with salvation. Uh, but John received the Holy Spirit from birth. There was someone else in Scripture who received the Holy Spirit from conception. Thank you. Uh, do you remember who that was? Oh, come on. You can do this. If you don't know the answer, it's safe to guess Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Also, like Jesus, number eight, John came from a miraculous birth right? We've, we, we know the story. We've heard this over the last couple weeks. Um, Jesus's birth was miraculous in that he came from two virgins. John's birth was miraculous in that his parents were too old to conceive. Um, with John, the, we heard the story last week from our district superintendent, Joe Winger. Gabriel appeared to his father, Zechariah, when he was on duty in the temple and said, you're going to have a child. Zechariah said, no, nah, I don't think so. I'm too old for that. that. That just can't happen. And because of that, number nine, Zechariah's mouth was shut when he doubted the angel's announcement. I really, I really enjoyed, appreciated what the, the contrast that our district superintendent drew as he talked about this last week. He said, Zechariah's words were, um, how can this be, or how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. 
And Gabriel's words were, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Like, how much more sure do you need to be? Okay. Finally, number 10, Mary was present for John's birth. Mary was present for John's birth or left some time before it happened. My guess is that a lot of us have never picked up on this. So, so let me show you how we know this with certainty. You should have your Bible open now to Luke chapter 1. What I want you to do is look up at verse 26. Luke 1.26 says, In the sixth month after Elizabeth had become pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And then he goes on, goes on she, he appears to Mary and he says, by the way, Mary, you're pregnant. But how far along was Elizabeth at that point? Do it with me. Put the fingers up. Come on. You, I'm not feeling the energy today. Six months, right? Six months. How long is your typical pregnancy? So you'd need to add how many months to that to get to a typical pregnancy? This is good. This is good. You're, you're with me. Jump down to Luke 156. Here's what it says. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about how many? Three months, then she returned home. Okay? Mary returned, we don't know for sure on kind of which side of the event, but Mary returned home either because Elizabeth was going into labor or because Elizabeth had just given birth. It's probably the latter, but scripture doesn't say for sure. We just know that, that Mary was there during the final trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That, that the Savior of the world was in Mary's womb as the one who would announce his coming was about to be born. That, that just blows my mind. Today what we want to do is we want to look at the, the verses that follow that. Uh, and these verses are about the celebration that happened after, after John the Baptist was born. When the forerunner you know, finally arrived on the scene so that we could, you know, we could see him and hear him and interact with him. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1 starting at verse 57 if you'd like to follow along. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Probably because she put it on Instagram and got 715 likes. <laughs> on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. This is Jewish tradition. This is custom. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. This is not necessarily Jewish custom. You, you've probably heard before, you may remember that, that the Jewish custom was for a son to carry his father's name, we would say, as his last name. So in, in the New Testament, you've got Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, Bar means son of Jonah. So Simon, Jonah's son, basically. So uh, the boys carried their father's name and the last name. It would be weird to name this boy. It wouldn't be custom anyway to, to call him Zechariah bar Zechariah. Okay. So, so that's, that's kind of odd, but not as odd about what happens next. Verse 60. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. So they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name his child. And why did they make signs to Zechariah? Because he couldn't speak, right? Gabriel said, you doubted? You can't speak until the baby's born and called John, okay? So they made signs to his father and, uh, to find out what he would like to name the child. He's the one who should do the naming anyway. 
verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. So when Gabriel appeared to to Zechariah, and Zechariah doubted, Gabriel made a two-part prophecy. One, you're going to have a son. Two, you're going to call him John, and then you'll be able to speak again. Okay, so Zechariah just fulfilled kind of the, the part of that prophecy where he said his name shall be John. And then the rest of Gabriel's prophecy was fulfilled. Verse 64, immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak praising God. Now what Luke does here is kind of pushes the pause button. And then he pulls back the curtain so we can see kind of what's going on in the background. He, he fills in some more information on the story. Verse 65, all the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. All these things being what? Probably that Elizabeth, who was too old, conceived And then she successfully carried the baby to term and gave birth to him. And they called him John. And oh, by the way, Zachariah couldn't talk because apparently an angel appeared to him. But then when he said his name would be John, Zachariah could talk. People just going, whoa, what's going on here? Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand, Luke says, was with him. And so now Luke closes the curtain again and we go back to this Uh, this time of celebration. Now, if you were Zachariah and you hadn't spoken in nine months, what might be the first thing you'd say? I have a daughter who would probably say, can we go to Taco Bell? (laughs) I mean, I don't don't know. What would your words be? Think about it. I I don't know what mine would be. When Zachariah spoke, his first words were what's been uh, what we now call the Benedictus, this, this song or this, uh, these words about God's goodness. And as we read it, we get the sense that Zechariah is so excited about it that he can't even, like he won't even breathe. As a matter of fact, the first part of this, this poem or this song is, is a giant run-on sentence. As Luke writes it, it's, it's like the worst grammatical sentence ever, but he's trying to communicate how, ex- how excited Zechariah was. So let's start in 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Here's where the run-on sentence starts. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And that's the end of the run on sentence. Like Zechariah is so excited to talk about the fact that God has fulfilled his promise. The first thing that Zechariah says is, It's right around the corner. He's ready to do it. God is moving and acting now. This this promise that he made to us centuries ago is coming true right now. And then Zechariah continues. 
This time, instead of talking about God, he's, he's speaking to or, or maybe over, we would say, his son John. I, I picture him holding John as he says these things. Verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. And then Luke hits the pause button one more time and pulls back the curtain. Verse 80 says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So I said when I started today, I wanted to share with you what I believe could very well be the best gift that you could give anyone this Christmas or or really any time throughout the year. Now, I want to be clear before we continue that without a doubt, the best gift that anyone can receive is the gift of salvation. That's not the gift I'm talking about this morning because the gift of salvation isn't ours to give. Now, we can share our faith. We can, we can share our story about how God has changed our life. We can, we can invite others and encourage others to become followers of Jesus Christ. We can be a church that's opening and wel- open and welcoming so that when people come, they feel accepted and, and we remove barriers from them, them encountering God. But when it comes right down to it, salvation is God's work. He's the only one that can extend to someone else the opportunity to become a child of God. And each person has to make up their mind. Each person has to decide, what am I going to do with God's invitation to me? And understand, God does open up that invitation to everyone. But everyone has to decide, how am I going to respond to God's offer, his free gift of salvation? Undoubtedly, that's the best gift that anyone could ever receive. But we're not talking about that today. That's not the gift to which I'm referring because I don't believe that's a gift that we can offer. The gift I want to talk about today instead is the gift of words of blessing. Let me show you what I mean. I told you earlier that, that part of this section, this, this part in the middle where Zechariah speaks again, is called the Benedictus. Uh, it's called the Benedictus because in the Latin version of the Bible, the first word that Zechariah says when he can speak again is the Latin word, Benedictus. Okay, the Latin word Benedictus comes from two Latin words, bene, which means good. We can hear that like in our English word, for example, beneficial. Okay, uh, there's, there's some relation there. And the, so bene, good. And the second part uh, of, of the word Benedictus is the, is the Latin word dicere, which means to speak or to say. So essentially what happens is Zachariah is saying, I'm going to say some good things here about God and about Jesus. Or excuse me, about John. What I want to do is jump down to verse 26 and, and notice again the good words that Zechariah says to John. He says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So I want you to catch that. I want you to to picture that. 
For nine months, John has been a living being in his mother's womb. And we know now that that babies in utero can hear and recognize moms and dads' voices. But for nine months, John, the forerunner, the one who would announce God's greatest gift, has not heard his father's voice. He's now been born. He's eight days old. They've just circumcised him. And the first time he hears his father's voice, his dad is saying to him, son, God has something huge for you. God has appointed you a prophet to do something that no one else can do. You will play an incredible role in God's gift of salvation to the whole world. Beloved, Scripture is clear about this time and time again. Words can shape a life. Words can shape a life. If you don't believe me, um, look at this, this verse from Proverbs 18, 21. Actually, let's read it off the screen together. The tongue has the power of life and death. Words can shape a life. What happens when you tell a boy over and over and over again, you can't do that? You'll never be able to do that. That's not for you to do. What happens is that eventually, more times than not, the boy is going to grow up and he's not going to do that thing, whatever that thing is. Even if God gave him the abilities and the capabilities to do it, chances are he's not going to because he's been told you can't do it. And those words have incredible shaping effect on him. What happens if you tell a little girl over and over and over again, you are so pretty. You are so pretty. Well, eventually she's going to believe that she's pretty. And she may also believe that that's the most important thing for a girl to be is pretty. Words have the power to shape a life for good, for bad, in this direction, in that direction. What we say matters not just to our children, but to each other. I know of a pastor who has two leaders in his congregation whose words have great effect on him. One of these leaders in the congregation is constantly critical of his pastor. Every time he talks to his pastor, it's uh, it's, 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 it's criticism about what the pastor isn't doing or isn't doing well enough. It's, it's outlandish accusations that, you know, that don't even have a basis in reality. It's not that everything he says to his pastor is critical, but everything he says to his pastor about his pastor is critical. And I've watched the effect that this has on this pastor on the other hand, there's another leader in the congregation, another man who, um, who from time to time will say critical words to his pastor. But more often than not, when he talks to his pastor about his pastor, he's trying to encourage him and help him and support him. And even when he does have critical, critical things that have to be said, because as a pastor, I'll tell you, and, and probably all of you as a human being would go, there are some times when people have to say hard things to me. I, sometimes we all just have to hear those. Scripture says wounds from a friend can be trusted. But even, even when that second leader has to say the hard things, the critical things, he does it with an, excuse me, an encouraging uh, motive, uh, with encouraging tone. 
in an encouraging way. And I've watched what that does to this pastor. I can always tell with this pastor whose words he's been exposed to most recently. Because when it's the, when it's the, uh, the critical leader, I watch the toll that takes and the pastor begins to feel incapable and um, you know, unworthy of, of pastoring his church. But when he's been exposed, even in less, less quantity, but more recently to the encouraging leader, he suddenly feels secure and confident and capable in what he can do. Words have the power to shape a life. They can shape our children's lives. They can shape our lives, the lives of our peers. And they even shape our own lives. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that no one talks to you more than you do? No one talks to you more than you. We all have this running narrative going in our head. And usually it's about ourselves. Right now, you have that running narrative going. And in addition to, I wish you'd hurry up, you're, you're probably saying things about yourself. The question is, what are you saying to yourself about yourself? There was this old Saturday Night Live skit back in the 90s. Um, it was called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. If you remember this, say it with me. The, the Stuart Smalley, the actor, would look in a mirror at the beginning and end of every sketch, and he would say this to himself, to his reflection. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. It's funny and maybe a little psychobabble. I'm not suggesting that we all need to be Stuart Smalley. But I would ask you, what is your running narrative? What are you saying to yourself about yourself? Words can shape a life. Zechariah said to John at his birth, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. There's not a parent in this room that I know of that can say that to their child, unless, unless you've been visited by an angel, which is possible um, chances are we can't really say that with integrity over our children. But we could say, and you're a child of the Most High. We could say over our children, you are remarkably and wonderfully made. We could say to a friend who's struggling, you could do all things through Christ who gives you strength. We could, we could tell ourselves, I've been made a little less than God and I've been crowned with glory and honor. God has put under my authority all the works of my hands. These are all scriptures that we could speak to ourselves because words matter. They have the power to shape a life. And so as we think about this greatest gift that we could give anyone this Christmas or really any time in the year, what does that look like? How do we do that? What I want to do is look at Zechariah's words and point out three ways, three things I think we can do to use life-giving words to shape people's lives. Number one, speak scripture over people. Speak scripture over people. These, uh, this song, this Benedictus, these words that Zechariah speaks here are chalk full of scripture. And we don't pick up on all of it because we're not as finely tuned to the, to the Old Testament as Zechariah was. But, but theologians, as they, as they dissect this passage, 
Um, there's so much Old Testament references that they can't really agree on how many there are. On the low count, I found a theologian who said eight times Zechariah quotes or references verses from the Old Testament. And, and then I saw much higher numbers of theologians saying there's just, there's just a lot of Old Testament going on here, regardless whether it's eight or whether it's in the double digits. Let me ask this. When was the last time you said 200 words and had even eight Old Testament references in them, right? We, we're just, we don't tend to do this. We don't tend to make scripture intentionally part of our vocabulary, part of the way we talk to each other and encourage each other. But, but what if we did? What if we were intentional about speaking scripture over each other? What if you were to uh, phone call or text message or email or write a letter to someone who's been an encouragement or a help to you in your Christian walk? And what if you were to say to them, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. That's what Paul said to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1. What if you prayed with someone who's struggling with, with grief? or with anxiety, or with other, um, you know, mental health struggles? What if, you, what if you prayed with them or said to them, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your heart and mind until the day of Christ Jesus? That's right out of Philippians chapter 4. Or what if you said to someone who's struggling with health issues, and struggling with the fact that they're struggling with these health issues? What if you said to them, you know, physical health is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, both in this life and the next. Those were Holy Spirit-inspired words that Paul spoke to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Or what if you wrote, to, wrote a note to a child in Beulah Kids or a teen in Beulah Youth Group? And what if, you, what if you said to them and encouraged them, don't let anyone look down on you or, because you were young, but set an example for us old farts. Excuse me, shouldn't have said that. For us older people in, in speech and in life and love and faith and conduct and purity. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Why don't we speak scripture over each other? Words have the power to shape a life. And God's words are life-giving words. Let's be more intentional about speaking God's word over others. Secondly, um, we can remind people that God has a call on their lives. Again, notice Zechariah, the first thing he says to John is, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord and prepare a way for him. Parents, let me ask you this. When it comes to the life of your children, regardless of their age, what's most important to you? Is it that your child's life would play out the way that you want it to play out? Or is it that God's will would be done perfectly in their life? Now, if I don't miss my guess, most of us Christian parents would say, well, of course it's that God's will would play out in their life. But what I think we miss so often is that God's will doesn't always look like we think it will. 
I've been thinking about this and meditating on this lately. And, and uh, I think a lot of Christian parents, if, if we were to summarize our desire for our children, it might be in these three points. First of all, we want to keep our children from going to hell, right? What Christian parent doesn't want their child to know Jesus, and to be assured that when they die, they'll be in heaven for eternity. We, we want that for them. Secondly, I, I think, and maybe we wouldn't verbalize it like this, but, but often our efforts with our children are focused on keeping them from raising hell. We don't want them to do wrong things. We don't want them to live in a wrong way. We don't want them to live in a way that displeases God. And so too often to accomplish that, we insulate them and we isolate them. We try to keep all bad influences away from them because we don't want our child to become like that. Thirdly, I think sometimes we, uh, and again, we, we may not say it like this, but if we're to be honest, um, sometimes as parents, this is our approach. We try to scare the hell out of our children. We try to scare them to the point that they won't do anything wrong, that they won't make any mistakes that displease God or us. And what, we, what happens is we end up with children who either A, these, as young adults, um, aren't doing anything with their lives because they're too afraid to try something because they might displease God or mom and dad. Or two, on the other end of the spectrum, who've taken some wrong steps. They've gotten into some things that they know don't please God and don't please mom and dad. But they keep it hidden. They won't talk about it. They won't tell others about it. Mom and dad, if they know about it, won't, won't be honest about it, won't open up and ask for help. Sin thrives in secrecy. We don't find healing and wholeness in secrecy. Meanwhile, God doesn't necessarily disagree with any of those things, but meanwhile, God's desire for our children is that they would take on hell that they would raid the gates of hell, that they would stand at the gates of hell and send people the other direction, that they would be doing everything they can to claim people for God's kingdom. And, and in order for God to accomplish that in the lives of our children, that means that he's probably going to have to take them some place that, places that we don't like, that are uncomfortable for us, that, that put their faith and their life at risk. Sometimes that means in order to accomplish that, God has to lead our children through questions, uh, through wrestling with things that make us uncomfortable, things that we never wrestled with and we don't have the answers to. But they have to have that fight in order for God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in their lives. Sometimes God's put dreams and desires in our children's hearts that we don't understand, that we don't like, but God needs to do that because he has a greater will for them. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly what God's will is for everyone. But parents, I guess the question for us is, are we doing what Zachariah did? Are we entrusting our child to God's will for them? What are we doing to help them discover God's will, to encourage them in that, to free them up to do it, even when it makes us uncomfortable or scared or, or worried? is the most important thing for us, and do our kids know the most important thing for us, is that they discover God's will for them, regardless of what that looks like. And are we willing to support them in that? Words have the power to shape a life, and so I think we constantly have to use our words to remind people, especially our children, not only them, 
but especially them, that God has a call on their lives. And then number three, do we use our words to point people back to God's promises for them? Notice how Zechariah finishes this, uh, these words, verse 78. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This rising sun thing is from a prophesy in the book of Malachi. It says the sun, the son of God will rise with healing in his wings. The idea is that he'll shine light on the dark places of our lives, that he'll lead us through the difficult things and we will walk in peace. Zechariah is, is pointing his son back to God's promises. And I wonder, do we do this with ourselves in our running dialogue? King David was good at doing this for himself. In 2 Samuel, he writes, In your strength, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale any wall. King David was saying, God has promised never to leave me, never to forsake me, that I'll always be victorious with him. I can do this in God. What, what about us? Have we become like David, able to encourage ourselves in the Lord? What do you say when you're overwhelmed with the amount of sacrifice that a season of life is calling out of you, is expecting from you? Do you say, as Paul did, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? I can live in the easy days and I can live in the hard days. With Christ, I can live when there's plenty and I can live when there's plenty of want. Teenagers, when it seems like the people who you call friends or used to call friends are busy backbiting and gossiping and saying things about you that aren't true, what do you say to yourself? Do you remind yourself of what Paul said in Romans 8? If God is for me, who can stand against me? Let them say what they want, but God's on my side. They're not going to hurt me. When I'm out of my comfort zone and have no idea if I can even do what my boss has asked me to do. And even though I've tried to beg off, she said, no, you've got to do it. It's your responsibility. Can I say, as King David did, God's my strength. In his strength, I can crush an army. With him, I can scale the tallest wall. Words matter. They, they can shape a life, including our life. Are we good at reminding ourselves of the promises that God has given us, of who God is and what he's doing in our life? Of course, it's not easy to do any of these things, any of these three things, if God's words don't saturate our heart. When we're squeezed, what comes out? The only way to ensure that it's God's word that comes out is to fill our lives up with God's word when we're not being squeezed. That's why we talk about daily devotions. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible every day. That's why we, we, we love things like the YouVersion Bible app and the reading plans and, and, and our daily bread, which we make available in the back. Because if we fill ourselves up with God's word, we have something to say when it's needed. We can speak scripture over people. We can remind people of God's will. We can point back to the promises of, God's, of God. Words have the power to shape a life.
And as we approach Christmas in a week and a half here, I want to ask you, what could you do to shape someone's life with your words? Could you write a letter to your children or to your spouse or to your parents and tell them how God has used them in your life or what you see God doing in their lives? Could you push the pause button in a busy season and and invite a, a friend out for coffee or for a meal and just spend time telling them, reminding them of God's promises, of how, how you see God working in their lives. This isn't just a Christmas thing, but this is the season of gift giving. So maybe, maybe we could find a way to use our words to shape a life for God's glory. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the giver of life, that you're the giver of every perfect gift. Every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. And we know that you delight to speak your truth over us. We have a sense from the Psalms that, uh, that you are constantly speaking and singing truth over us. Father, would you help us to be like you in that? Would you help our words to be seasoned with encouragement and love and hope? Would you help us to to speak scripture over people, to speak scripture into situations, to remind people that you have a will for them, a desire, a plan, not to prosper them and not to harm them, but to, uh, to work through them so that your kingdom, so that your name can be glorified. Father, would you help us to speak truth to ourselves about who we are without you, about who we are because of Jesus and and who we are in Jesus. Father, would you silence the tongue of the accuser and allow us to hear your spirit's voice. And as we hear that, would you speak through us to others, to our children, to our friends, to our spouses, spouse, to uh, ourselves. Father, we love you. We thank you for Zechariah's example with John the Baptist. Father, we pray that our words would shape lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.